Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of the Joy of Financial Planning podcast. The topics of this podcast are a complement to the book, Joy of Financial Planning, available in stores including Barnes & Noble and Amazon.com. Joy of Financial Planning is about the belief that we can overcome the unique economic and life challenges we face as a generation by first getting our financial house in order. In fact, we have no other choice. Now more than ever, we must grow our wealth, follow our passions, live with compassion, and find a way to achieve a personalized version of the American dream. Just as it has been in prior generations, the ideal of the American dream is being challenged, not just because of the novel coronavirus pandemic, but because of the callous murder of a fellow black man, George Floyd, that we all got to see. The example of his abuse, and that of many others, cuts through the core of the American dreams I have believed in all of my life. I have a persistent belief that all are created equal, worthy of respect, deserving of opportunity, and the ideals of the American dream live inside all of us. I thank you for supporting dreams, your dreams, by listening to this podcast. The purpose of this content is to educate listeners and for them to inform others. This episode is part of a series of recorded Zoominars from my Jason Howell Company YouTube channel. That's where you'll find the video versions. In my business life, my wealth management firm collaborates with many experts. Together, we transform regular investors into patriarchs and matriarchs of their families and their communities. This episode features some of that expertise. Please send your feedback to jason at jasonhowell.com and give this episode a rating, especially on Apple Podcasts, if that's the kind of thing you do. For more about my unique brand of family wealth management, just go to jasonhowell.com. And now, sustainable, responsible, and impact investing like a professional with Jenny Coombs, Associate Professor at the College for Financial Planning. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of the Jason Howell Company Speaker Series Zoominars. My name is Jason Howell, and I'll once again be your host. Today, we've got a great episode. It's all about sustainable, responsible impact investing. 2020 has been a crazy year. And if you haven't been thinking about this, then I don't know what you've been thinking about, but it's a great opportunity to make a transition from being just a stockholder, if you're an investor, all the way towards being a true stakeholder of our community. We've got a great guest today. Her name is Jenny Coombs, and she's Associate Professor of the College of Financial Planning. But before we get into her bio, let's just meet Jenny. Jenny, how's your day been today? Pretty great, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here. Uh, I know you've got so much knowledge to share. I guess I should let some people in that have been waiting for a little while. So I'll admit those folks into our uh, into our Zoominar, and now they'll, they'll pop in here. Uh, folks that have just gotten in, we've got Jenny Coombs, and she's doing okay. So let's just find out, dig a little deeper. How busy was your day today? Oh, boy. Uh, it was pretty busy. I actually started um, the day with a, a presentation to uh, one of our uh, wealth management groups, uh, giving a CE course, again, on sustainable investing. And I'm also in the middle of uh, teaching this 
uh, CSRIC designation as well. So I got a lot of talking to do today, <laughs> but I enjoy it. <laughs> if only we were here, I'd offer you a cough drop, uh, you know, hot tea, but unfortunately we're virtual. I appreciate the thought though. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Jenny. You've always been there. Um, well, I think we've got a few folks in here. It's time for us to start the official meeting. So let's go ahead and do that. I will share my screen as I am want to do. Okay, once again, welcome everyone. If you came to sustainable, responsible impact investing like a professional, then you've come to the right Zoominar. Our guest, of course, is Miss Jenny Coombs. He's got a bunch of credentials, a bunch of great experience. We're gonna get into all that in just a minute. But for now, a word from our sponsor. Jason Howell Company is a family wealth advisory firm that tries to transform just regular investors into the patriarchs and matriarchs our community needs. We do that now through sustainable, responsible investing, but also proactive philanthropy and something we like to call family governance. You mix all these things together and you have a firm that's focused on humans that want to do great things with their meaningful lives. For more information, of course, you can go to jasonhowell.com. And talking about sustainable, responsible investing, we've got Jenny Coombs today, um, who almost invented the whole thing, but maybe not really. She's uh, she's too young to have invented the whole thing, but she has invented the uh, designation for that, which is the CSRIC, the Chartered SRI Counselor. She's an associate professor at the College for Financial Planning, uh, now owned by Kaplan Company, uh, which is a firm that I've used to study for my designations, which has been pretty pretty fun when I pass, not fun while I'm doing it. Um, there is a partnership between the College for Financial Planning, Kaplan, and the Forum for Sustainable Responsible Investment. Uh, looking forward to learning a little more about that from Jenny. You can see more of her credentials here. She's a double major from Clarkson University. I think there were a couple of minors thrown in there too, Jenny. Um, so definitely someone that maybe spent a little longer in school to learn a lot more stuff. And you continue that throughout your professional life. Uh, Jenny, tell us about the CSRIC. Tell us about the ESG Advisory Board. We're all here to learn how to be more professional with our sustainable, responsible investment. Sure, Jason. Uh, so the Chartered SRI Counselor was a designation that I actually was brought on board with the College for Financial Planning to develop. Um, the uh, college had learned a little bit about my experience and background with sustainable investments and thought this would be perfect to bring to a broader audience. Uh, in the process, I ended up uh, partnering with USCIF, um, the Forum for Sustainable Responsible Investment. They were, um, they're a group that was developed in Washington, D.C. back in the 1980s, and they have been uh, providing trends and information related to sustainable investing uh, since the mid-90s on a biannual basis. Uh, so with their help, I incorporated a lot of their specific research in the space as well as annual trends. And so they've been a wonderful partner. I do work with them closely, as you can see in that list of credentials. I also serve on their education committee. Um, they do have a uh, an executive board of different uh, uh, experts in the field at different uh, asset managers, banks, organizations, nonprofits across the country, uh, and then they do have subcommittees as, as well. So I'm sort of their consulting member for their education committee, nice. and I do teach um, their uh, uh, one of the modules of their uh, fundamentals and sustainable investing courses uh, that they offer a few times a year. 
Yeah, the, the resident expert, it sounds like. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about this uh, new advisory board with Investment News, which I know is your Bible and probably many others who are watching this, uh, this episode. <laughs> Well, I've if you if you search, I've actually been um, quoted in quite a few uh, news periodicals over the past couple of years. Um, one of the more recent ones was Investment News. I've I've been consulted by them uh, from time to time to comment on new developments in ESG when there are breaking stories. And uh, I was recently asked to be a part of their ESG advisory board looking specifically for new stories in the ESG space. Uh, they realized actually when they developed the board that they didn't have representation in academia, which is what I hopefully uh, fulfill uh, in that role. Uh, so beyond simply just uh, having asset managers and those in, in um, active financial consulting roles, you've got academics represented there. So um, helping them a little bit with a, a forum that they're developing for later in the year. Uh, so that's one of the, the big elements working on with them. So I'm exciting. excited to be part of that group. <laughs> well, it sounds exciting. It sounds very exciting. And we are happy to have you, uh, someone that's relied upon in our investment community um, quite heavily to really professionalize this world of sustainable, responsible, impact investing, ESG investing, when there's so many names for it, maybe we can start off with this first basic question. What exactly is this kind of investing? How would you explain it? So <laughs> this is fun. Um, there is this uh, misconception that we can use SRI and ESG interchangeably in terms of um, describing the way in which this um, type of investing is done, but that's not 100% the case. Uh, quick history on SRI. The original acronym, as it was described historically, was for um, socially responsible investing, which is used still quite frequently today. Um, it changed about 20 years ago or so when there was this shift away from having the space not be so exclusive in terms of selecting investments, but wanted to broaden it and being a little more inclusive for things that were good for the environment, that were good for human rights, and not just simply screening out investments that we deem to be sinful or bad or uh, immoral or uh, contrary to particular religious beliefs. That is uh, what socially responsible investing was initially developed to do, but it still encompasses those um, criteria. It's just a little bit more uh, broad these days. So it looks at environmental factors, uh, broader societal issues, um, systemic racism or um, gender equality, broadly human rights, as well as addressing corporate governance matters, uh, the diversity of a board of directors, the independent voting of boards. So SRI for us today now would stand for sustainable, responsible and impact investing. Um, it's the strategy that we use for investments. Um, so it's a way to optimize sustainability and responsibility, as well as achieving financial objectives at the same time. 
It's a little different though from ESG. Okay. ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. These are the criteria that we evaluate to create an SRI strategy. So ESG is the criteria, SRI is the strategy um, that we use ESG for. Um, and broadly speaking, ESG, there is no one universal definition of what factors constitute each of those um, sleeves or uh, silos, I guess, if you want to call them that. Anything that falls under the E factor is going to be impactful for the environment or for our purposes, the world that we live in. So it could be uh, the scarcity of natural resources, climate change, um, uh, forest fires, hurricanes, um, water issues, air issues, anything that is affecting our physical environment. The S factor, though, is very broad um, because it's encompassing as well the responsible factors of the things that we looked at historically relating to religious matters and, and ethical concerns, but it's also looking at uh, the human issues that companies face. Everything from the way that employees are treated to the benefits they receive um, to how they view others in the world. Um, so racism matters, gender equality, LGBTQ um, individuals, and um, also looking back through their supply chains, uh, if they are using child labor, if they're exploiting human populations in developing countries, uh, there's a lot of factors that can fall under S. Uh, and then G is a little bit more straightforward because it's been so prominent in financial analysis in general, we need to understand who the board of directors is, who leads the company. Are they ethical people? Uh, how is their board structured? Are they elected annually? Do they have um, uh, independence in terms of how many people are located at other firms or how many people are internal? All of these are factors that are worth noting to uh, evaluate an SRI strategy. And then impact investing <laughs> tacked so on the end so there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> impact investing can fit as part of the broader SRI strategy. It doesn't have to, though. Um, I say that uh, you can think about the use of ESG criteria a bit like a little reverse pyramid, where on a broader scale, um, we have people who are looking merely for integration of ESG factors because it enhances the quality of their investments, right? So it finds risk factors that might otherwise be overlooked. For those that have um, values behind their investments, either for religious or moral or ethical reasons, then they can add that dimension of value creation. But then the impact is um, a smaller but wider expanding group these days, where if I'm looking to have any kind of investments, I want them to make a difference somehow. And it's a challenge for a lot of asset managers to prove how impact occurs. But there are ways in which they can do that these days. Um, a lot of asset managers now tie their performance back to things like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and they can measure effectively how much uh, live, how many lives were changed, what was built, what was done with that money to demonstrate how impact occurs. So very long-winded answer. I hope I didn't confuse people too much, but 
That's how we would look at each of those. <laughs> you just need to enroll in your course, right? It just shows how big uh, this is. I mean, and, and let me ask this, as a firm that is more and more moving towards this kind of investing, in fact, we've committed our entire firm to start moving towards this investing. Would it be sensible to say we're an SRI firm, uh, knowing that the acronym for ourselves stands for Sustainable Responsible Investing? Would that make sense? You could absolutely use that term. There are uh, many firms that will keep the focus on that, the SRI, Sustainable, Responsible, and Impact. Um, those that throw around the ESG might do so simply because it's an additional factor on um, the analysis that they're already doing. But ones that are really, truly looking for an impact and also to demonstrate to clients that they're making an impact um, can be done with... Um, impact. Yes, exactly. Tacking on the, the SRI as part of your firm. Yeah. It's perfectly fine. <laughs> and you had that hierarchy where you said essentially the, um, you know, it seemed like on the bottom was this ESG and then there was impact or no, then there was um, essentially a socially just the S, I guess, um, and then impact at the top. Would you sort of foundationally say potentially, and I'm, I'm saying, I'm asking you who knows the definition versus you know, the other side of it is the public that understands what they understand, right? So it's the public says socially responsible investing, and that's what it is. Um, but like denotatively, should it be an umbrella of SRI? And then within that can be ESG, which are the methods for making the SRI happen. And then underneath that would be the impact if you can measure it. Absolutely. There are so many terms, Jason, that exist here also and around the world that'll fall under that SRI umbrella. So okay. the way I describe it to my class, there's about 10 to 12 or so different terms where you could isolate a piece of each. Some would only focus on environmental factors. Some would only focus on responsible issues. Some would just use ESG integration as part of that piece, but all of it collectively falls under that SRI umbrella. So uh, there is really, and until there is some universal definition created on a global scale, there really is no right or wrong way to describe it. It's purely at this point, um, preference and also how deeply you go into it. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. I know that was a, a big first question, but we needed to level set um, to get to the next question, which is essentially, um, how does this kind of investing essentially drive real credible change, um, be it from companies or the society or whatever it's trying to do? How does that actually happen? So, oh boy. <laughs> Another big There's, one, I hope I didn't do that. Oh, no, 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 no. I can, I can break this down into, into two areas where this probably would be um, notable regarding change. On the one hand, if we want to look at it from more of a macro point of view, what it's helping to do is level the playing field in, in a way that um, – holds companies accountable for actions when they previously probably didn't think about that. And what I mean there is there is this interconnection of the world these days where information spreads so quickly that a company's reputation becomes all that they have. Um, there was a really interesting stat 
uh, I read in a, in, a, in a course recently that was uh, noted that approximately 86% of the value of a company, its market cap, everything, is derived from intangible assets. Hmm. Wow. So, one, so 86%, the rest is all tangible assets, their property, their, plan, their product that they generate. Everything else is driven by the company's reputation and its forecast. So when you have that much of a company's value relying on reputation, what it's aiming to do, especially with this criteria, is having that company optimize that and make it not just uh, to be able to generate revenues out a couple years, but generate it for decades and to keep it going. It's not just sustainability as it relates to the survival of the planet, but the survival of the company itself. So that in and of itself is helping to, in this case, for real change, enhance the quality of publicly traded companies. That is what I really feel it's, it's doing these days in particular. The second one re relating to real change is where you can see it on a macro or a micro level rather. Um, usually this is done through the use of things like, um, like we'll look at a little bit later on, shareholder engagement or uh, activism in, in that sense. Um, but it's, it's also allowing companies to engage with investors on specific uh, issues that are important to their local communities. And honestly, I could give you a laundry list of examples where real change occurred thanks to a lot of this evaluation and the engagement that shareholders have. My favorite one, actually, there was a, a documentary on Netflix I watched a few years ago um, about tomato harvesters in Florida. And specifically tomatoes and specifically in Florida, the human rights violations of these harvesters was egregious. The things that these poor people had to suffer at the hands of major corporations was absolutely appalling. And it was the public that drove the local grocery store chains in Florida that they supplied these tomatoes to, to make those changes happen for those people. Uh, so that's an example really on a, on a micro level of how corporate involvement uh, can take the factors that are brought to the forefront by shareholders and make a difference. So on a, on a broad scale, it's enhancing the quality of companies, but on a local level, it's really enhancing uh, people's lives and the environment in, in uh, general there. Yeah, in that sense, it's it's really all about the S portion, right? It's all about people at the end of it all. Absolutely. And that S drives a lot of that value, the intangible assets yeah. uh, that companies have. Oh, well, thank you for that. I mean, the next question here is just giving us uh, an idea of the scope. You, you mentioned some decades long background with this, and it is hard for a lot of people to understand how long this kind of investing, this kind of focus has been going on? Um, and not only that, but, um, you know, how big is this? So can you give us some, some idea about those two areas? Absolutely. It actually, believe it or not, and, it's in, and in some form or another, SRI has existed for a few hundred years. Uh, hmm. Originally, it started with the foundations of... Um, some of the Protestant churches in the United States 
but you saw an evolution within the 20th century where uh, post-World War II, there were more uh, community issues that started to arise. Things like um, uh, the civil rights movement, for one, was a huge driver of that. Um, the first time anybody heard the term ozone layer thrown around was in the 80s. Uh, and uh, issues in uh, South Africa related to apartheid. All of these were big events from the 20th century that actually sparked interest by investors to see that their dollars could actually make a difference. Um, and that's the momentum that led up to the past 20 years or so. Uh, so today, this is just based on data that U.S. CIF had collected, and it will actually change in the coming months since they do have numbers for 2020 uh, that will be released in November of this year. But from 2018's uh, figures, one in every four dollars under professional management in the United States uses some kind of SRI strategy. Whatever 25%. they, 25 percent. Wow. Mm -hmm. And this actually grew from in 2016, it was about 20%. So it's steadily proportionately increasing in the US. So if you want to think about it on a dollar amount, it constitutes approximately $12 trillion of professional assets under management in the US that use some kind of SRI screen. Now that's just in the US though, on a global scale, it's even bigger. Uh, this has been a prominent strategy used in Europe for years. Uh, European markets actually constitute the vast majority, about half of all the world assets that use SRI are fixated in the EU. Um, and then there are um, other pieces of that global pie that are getting bigger. Uh, Japan is a huge one, actually, that actually... Um, open the door to a lot more inclusivity when it comes to shareholder activism. So with that option available in the Japanese markets, this has been um, had a massive surge in the strategy that they use there. And in, uh, in Canada and in Australia and in New Zealand, SRI actually constitutes more than half of all of their professional assets under management. So more than 50%. So even though it's it's a big deal in the U.S., it's a bigger deal in the rest of the world. So we have some catching up to do. <laughs> wow. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, that's that almost answers part of the question of the next one, right? What do most investors not know? I don't think most oh. investors, you know, know that that's a reality. Is there something else as a bullet point that you would think, um, you know, most investors kind of need to know when considering this kind of investing and, and should know? Absolutely. And it made me think of one point that I was going to mention uh, was you asked kind of how big it is now. You know, the more important point is like, when did it start growing? Because that's usually what a lot of people have concerns with. They say, oh, well, if it existed for hundreds of years, why is it such a big deal these days? Why are so many people jumping on board? We can actually see graphically, the surge in assets in the U.S. happened around 2010. And the reason for that is we had emerged from the market collapse in 2008, 2009. There was legislation that went with that, that made shareholders pay attention more. And what it kind of did was give companies a signal to 
understand that they are beholden to shareholder needs and wants. And with that information in mind, it started to come across that, okay, we need to have more ethical companies out there. They have to have practices that are going to be uh, sustainable for the lifespan of the company and also improve the quality of the company uh, going forward. So that's really when it started to take off, if you will, um, was about 10 years ago. And it still um, is growing to the point where my hope is that one day this will just be called investing yeah. and not some separate category altogether. And that's for many parts of the world, the situation as well. But one thing that COVID-19 has actually taught us is we hadn't experienced market volatility like 2008, 2009 since then. But what this actually proves is the point that many of these advisors had been making all along was that when you use ESG criteria, it points out risk factors that you otherwise wouldn't think about. And when you think about them, you need to have them in a comprehensive strategy. And what we've seen is actually that ESG funds tend to outperform broader market indexes purely for the um, uh, point that they screen out a lot of these risk factors. So what you might not know yet <laughs> is that what we've experienced now was sort of the, the practice in action. Up until this point, it was just a theory. It's actually been proven now that this is the whole reason why we use ESG. Uh, okay. So the outcome, I hope, from 2020 is that this is really important uh, to use in a broader strategy for everyone. Wow, thank you. And for those of you who are on now, great opportunity at this point to put any question you might have for Jenny in the chat, send it out to everyone, either Jenny or I will pick it out and um, make sure we address it before we end our Zoom. Um, as we're waiting for those questions, uh, if they do come, uh, Jenny, can you tell us a little bit about this concept of shareholder engagement? Absolutely. So shareholder engagement, there's a few different pieces to this. Um, the more prominent approaches, there's usually about six that are categorized as being part of shareholder engagement. Um, but engaging in dialogues with companies, it's a way for uh, investors to influence companies to change their practices. Uh, if they think there's a way they can be more efficient, if there's a controversy in some way, if they just plain don't like the CEO and think somebody else would be better, that could all be part of that discussion. Uh, so they can engage in dialogues with companies directly or indirectly through an asset manager um, in that capacity, uh, have email petitions, some kind of uh, engagement with other shareholders to petition companies to change Many of the changes are the result of ongoing dialogues over the years. If you've noticed in recent years that companies all of a sudden started to get on board with um, LGBTQ rights or diversity matters or addressing systemic racism, that wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't a product just of the news. They've actually been in discussion for years. Um, and now they're actually starting to, to take part in that. But other ways that shareholders engage is simply through voting, uh, your proxy, proxy voting, um, looking at the issues that come up for vote, uh, 
during shareholder meetings and voting on those matters is probably the easiest way if you are currently a shareholder to engage. Uh, but something that I know we'll talk about a little bit later on are shareholder resolutions. And the shareholder resolution is kind of like a last line of defense uh, to encourage the company to change. By doing so, going through the SEC and taking those steps to uh, go about it. So broadly speaking, um, any time you have shareholders um, owning a stock and want to influence the company in some manner, that's how we engage uh, okay. use of, uh, shareholder engagement. <laughs> now, now there are two questions in the chat. I want to um, burrow in on this because it partially answers one eventually. Sure. Um, you mentioned shareholder resolution. So there is activism. There is sort of voting the proxies that we, we might get in the mail and sort of throw out. Um, but could you hone in a little bit on that idea of the shareholder resolution? I don't think most people know what that is. Sure. So the shareholder resolution, um, the legislation itself was born out of uh, the passing of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, which was a direct response to shareholders kind of being left in the dark in things that resulted in the market collapse in 1929. With that big event, it was born into uh, the passing of this legislation, um, which encouraged companies to publish information and create a prospectus. Then later on in uh, 1970, um, you had uh, the Securities Inve Investors Protection Act of 1970, which developed the rules that have been in existence for the past 50 years. And that is to say that if you own a minimal amount of companies stock. Um, historically, it's been $2,000 worth of the company stock that you've held for a year or more. Uh, you have the ability to file with the SEC a request that be brought to the company's board of directors for voting. Um, and usually the, the reason why this was put into place is that if you couldn't get through to the company on a particular change, you could do so through uh, the federal government. And when they are beholden to the rules of the SEC, then they have to listen. Uh, so if it comes through the SEC and it's brought to their board's attention, then it will become an issue that needs to be addressed and voted upon. So that's the use of shareholder advocacy or filing shareholder resolutions in, in that sense. Um, there's been some events in, in recent months, actually, that have stirred that up a bit, but I think we'll talk about that soon, right? Yeah, and then, uh, that's actually one of the questions that is in the chat. There's another question that came to me personally um, that I'm going to throw out there um, before we get to it, because I think that that next question will take a couple of minutes. And it was really in and around um, the question blanketly was, how do you evaluate companies or investments? And, and so I asked about a follow-up and do you mean, how does Jenny do it or how do you do it in general? Um, and she was open to both of those answers. So generally, how does one evaluate? Maybe the question is in and around, how do you get data sort of to back up these things that we're trying to evaluate? So that is a great question because this is an area that's evolving so much in recent years. Uh, there are several firms that have kind of refined this to an art where they will uh, publish ratings or rankings or scores relating to ESG factors to make it easier for shareholders to digest. 
On the other hand, when it comes to finding this data, it can be a little bit more challenging. And the reason for that is the data that they're using is all publicly available. Therefore, the onus is on the companies to disclose that information. Now, if you have a company disclosing something like carbon emissions, let's say, there is not a scientist sitting at the SEC looking at this in a 10K filing and verifying that that's the truth. Right. That's the problem. Um, the companies themselves are listening to shareholders and about 90% of the companies in the S&P 500 disclose some kind of ESG data in their 10K filings. They are not required by the SEC to do so, but they're doing so because shareholders demand it, request it. Um, with that in mind, to evaluate companies, it becomes, unless you're using a third party research source, it can get a little bit daunting. Um, but to kind of understand the directionality of companies, um, or especially in the, the reason or route, rather, how most investors get involved in this space is through the use of mutual funds or ETFs. When you are looking at a mutual fund or an ETF, that's really what I can tell folks how to evaluate is when you have a company prospectus, they ought to be able to, in that prospectus, tell you specifically what criteria they're looking at, why they made these investment choices, how they're going to keep this up in the future. If they don't do that, we can say this is a term called greenwashing, uh, where the mutual funds or ETFs are really just ESG in name only and offer no proof as to how they're being sustainable. But to evaluate those companies when it comes to looking at their prospectus, that should be the easiest way to do it, um, to see how if, they're, if they have some kind of impact mandate that they're um, showing how the impact is happening, if they're using the uh, sustainable development goals, how they're tying that back. And... Um, Oh, shoot, there was one more thing I was going to mention with that. Uh, not only do they outline specifically how they're being sustainable and, and tying that back to, um, but if they have a controversial holding in their top 10 holdings, they need to explain why it's there. So for instance, um, BlackRock, one of their largest um, ESG portfolios, has a major oil company in their top 10 holdings. For the average person who's interested in sustainability, they'd say, well, what the heck is that doing there? Right. Most funds offer no explanation, but BlackRock does. They tell the investors, here's why that company's there. Um, usually it's because they have some kind of uh, activism or shareholder engagement that they're doing in conjunction with that. So if part of the strategy is to shift their portfolio into more renewable energy and that's they're getting shareholders involved early in that process, then it's explained there. That's fine. But if all they're doing is mirroring some other index or you know, thinking performance wise, oh boy, I better have a well diversified portfolio. And here's an energy company that has, you know, 10% in renewables. Cool. They, they can be represented, but I won't tell my shareholders how that happens. 
Uh, so more easily, it can be done with mutual funds and ETFs these days. But when it comes to individual investments, that's a whole other ballpark. Okay. <laughs> there okay. are so many moving parts. And it depends on the sector. It depends on the industry. It depends on the geographic region. Uh, if I had, you know, all day, I could tell you more sure. about those. No, but... please. I mean, it, it's big and yeah. it's important. And maybe the spirit of that question was, you know, uh, is there data to be found? The answer is yes. Uh, sometimes it's easy to find in a prospectus for a mutual fund or an ETF. Sometimes it's more difficult to find because it isn't legally required. And then even when people disclose it, you have very little way to verify it unless you take a whole nother step. Does that sound mm -hmm. about right? That's perfect. <laughs> okay, good, good. If I'm perfect in your eyes, Jenny, then that's all I need in the world. Um, then I'm gonna get to this last question that we have. Um, which reflects a question in the chat. Of course, I wrote down, what are your thoughts on the recent SEC news? The question from the chat is, what do you think of regulation that is currently putting roadblocks in the way of adding SRI ESG focused funds into retirement plans? That's, that's more the Department of Labor uh, question. Mm -hmm. um, the one I'm talking about is the SEC question. So uh, maybe you can speak very briefly about both and then your, your answer and, and we'll get to letting you go for the day. <laughs> <laughs> so very, I'll try very briefly about both. <laughs> so they're two completely uh, separate pieces of yeah, legislation. Yeah. One is, like you said, the Department of Labor, and the other is the SEC. Uh, what the news currently is with the SEC is they're trying to change the legislation from 1970, where uh, you allowed the shareholders that have at least $2,000 worth of the company's stock. And they're amping that up to, I believe it's $15,000 worth of the company's stock yeah. in order to be able to file a resolution. In a nutshell, um, I, you know, I had a, a professor in college who, whenever he was angry about something, would say that a little fire in the belly is good. I would say I've got an inferno going right now. Okay, okay. <laughs> Because it makes no sense from a legislative perspective, no sense from a business perspective. There is absolutely no purpose in changing this legislation now, uh, except to say that you have some people or some executives who are just clawing for every little last piece of authority that they can have over this evolving world. <laughs> yeah, I believe there's and, also a three-year commitment instead of the one-year commitment. And that as well, yes. So yeah, you have to have all this money invested for longer now. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, though, it, the, the changing behind that legislation just, I feel like it's a way for companies to kind of downplay the issues that investors have coming up and perhaps put more of the um, impact in the hands of the wealthiest investors. Those who, you know, I'm, I'm talking more about like mid to upper middle class people who are shareholders used to have the authority to make companies change. But when you put it all on the wealthy individuals, now you put it in their courts and it makes absolutely no sense uh, because they more often than not are not the ones that are going to be directly impacted by some of these actions that the companies take. Um, when it comes to uh, the, DOL. the DOL, yeah, um, that um, they're, they're saying the DOL has like gone ping pong table on uh, SRI since 
the late 90s, actually. And it seems like every few years they flip flop and change their minds. And I'm pretty sure they'll do that again uh, before the decade is out. But uh, what their what their current stance or what the more recent opinion had been was that uh, a fiduciary should not be so quick to recommend an ESG fund if there's better performing options available. Now, what they're saying is performance is the only factor that you need to look at. And it doesn't even matter that there is the potential for externalities impacting your retirement plan investments. The onus is only on performance and nothing else. And if you are thinking about it, and and most of the um, comments that had been submitted to the DOL about this were related to that ESG is performance. We've proven that with this pandemic. The volatility that has occurred as a result of this has been leveled out and has outperformed thanks to ESG analysis. So very much, if you're going to put it on performance, is about that. Um, But in terms of the externality factor, something that long term you do have to pay attention to, uh, that's just really where people have a difference in opinion regarding what is the what we're really paying attention to. Are we trying to get gains in the short term or are we trying to ensure that this company exists 40 years from now? So um, in terms of both pieces of legislation, I don't see them holding much water for that many years. They're not long (laughs) for this world, right, Jenny? No. (laughs) Um, It's almost like we started. It's a question of, uh, of stockholder versus stakeholder or really being a stakeholder and encompassing all of it. Um, which is, which some might say is more important than the former. Um, well, Jenny, thank you. This has been incredibly informative for folks who are, um, who are considering this kind of investing. I'm going to stop the share so people can take a good look at you uh, when you're speaking <laughs> at least um, and have an opportunity to hear your final remarks. If, if they are an investor and many of the folks who will be watching this will be this kind of investor who's participated in the markets, who believes strongly in having performance, that's the whole point sort of, but then is getting to a point in their lives where they're thinking, you know, there's more to life than just the performance of my wealth and its growth. I also wanna be able to say that I'm a great stakeholder in the community. What's, uh, what's the first thing that I should maybe do to learn more about this and um, start to execute this kind of investing? Absolutely. And thanks again, Jason, for having me on today. Uh, So if you are an advisor, I highly recommend uh, considering the CSRIC designation um, and also um, looking at the resources provided by USCIF. Um, They are the leader in terms of bringing asset managers and institutional investors and research providers, everyone involved in the sustainable investment space together. And learning from using their website is a great way to do that. It's USSIF.org. Uh, is their website. And that's a plethora of useful information, no matter what area you're looking to become involved in. I'd say that's a good starting point. Uh, Really all I can say, and and that what I hope is my role in this as well, is to help people learn. Uh, The more people learn about it and understand the intricacies and understand that it's not just for one particular demographic, this benefits everybody in one form or another. 
So I highly encourage you to do your research, um, learn, ask questions, be skeptical. That is what makes this and will help this space evolve so much better over time. Don't just take everything at face value, but look into it um, more and more so that we can make this investing. <laughs> Soon this won't even be called sustainable, yeah. responsible investing. It's just plain investing. Just investing, <laughs> yes. hopefully in our lifetimes. Uh, Jenny Coombs, uh, MSF, uh, CSRIC, and many other acronyms, Associate Professor at College of Financial Planning. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for educating us. I look forward to seeing you again. And yes, I did sign up for that designation or I actually plan to press the button uh, very shortly. So I look forward to learning a lot more from you. Glad to hear it, Jason. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day.